Thank you. Ah, I feel the love. You don't need to smile at me because I can't see you. It's blindingly bright here, so don't worry about that. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. As Nigel said, I've been here for a while. I've been part of the Woodlands family, church family. I can't remember what words we use these days, but I've been part of it my whole life. Um, and at the moment, I'm on the vocational leadership track, and that means that I get to be involved with some prayer stuff, some evangelism. I help to lead a pastorate. I'm studying theology, and then every now and then I get to preach as well. And when I'm not at church, I can generally be found either taking emergency calls at the ambulance service, which is what I do part-time, or being an auntie, which I consider my true vocation in life. Um, but uh, yeah, so tonight we're going to be, I'm going to be speaking on, you guys aren't, sorry, I'm speaking on uh, the verse, a uh, tiny little nugget of a verse in 2 Corinthians that says they gave themselves first to the Lord. Um, First of all, just to say, I wouldn't feel any sense of capacity or ability to speak um, in this way if I weren't studying with WTC. Now, I love WTC. It's Westminster Theological Center. If you're at all interested in the smallest way in learning more about the Bible, please go and look at the website, which has this fabulous picture. That's, the, that's like the front page. <laughs> that enough should be what you need to go and look at the website. That's our lovely Matt Dobson. Um, but yeah, if you have any, just even the most vague interest in learning more about the Bible, come and talk to me about it. There are loads of people in the room who are studying with it, and I just love it. So I only feel equipped to speak tonight because I'm doing WTC, so represent. Um, but yeah, what we're going to do, like I said, that verse is taken from 2 Corinthians, so I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of the book of 2 Corinthians, because it's fantastic. And then we'll dive into what on earth Paul's talking about when he says they gave themselves first to the Lord. While I'm doing that, I just want you to think about um, that, that phrase, gave themselves. Like, I was thinking, when do we use that phrase? And it's basically, in someone's funeral, they say, oh, she really gave herself to her students. Or like, he gave his life to the NHS. It's something that we talk about, like, in reflection at the end of our time. So... If someone was to say of you, oh, he gave himself to this, she gave himself to that, herself to that, what is it that you've given yourself to? What does your time, your money, your interest go into? And while you're thinking about that, I will run you through my abridged version of 2 Corinthians. So, the Corinthian church was established in ancient Corinth, um, and it was uh, set up by Paul, who was like formerly this crazy zealot, this mega keen Jew who persecuted Christians until embarrassingly for him he had this radical encounter with Jesus and he became a Christian so he went around establishing these churches and he set up this church in Corinth which was a town of about well a city of 90,000 people and the church in Corinth scholars reckon was about 50 people so a tiny tiny minority and um, they were there trying to live counterculturally, trying to live for Jesus and the culture all around them was obsessed with two things Firstly, it was obsessed with public speakers. That was the thing they did. No Netflix, no like go-karting on the weekend. What they would do is they'd walk down to the market and listen to people give long speeches, like political speeches or tell great big stories or like philosophize out loud. And that's what people liked. They liked persuasive speaking and that was just really epic to them. And the other thing that the Corinthians loved was displays of wealth. So all the rich people would like shimmy into town and be like, I'm going to build you a road. Or they'd, you know, erect a building or something. And then on the side would be this massive plaque that said like Maximus Decimus Meridius donated this road to the town of Corinth or to the city of Corinth. And it was all about showing off how wealthy you were. 
Um, and so Paul's established this church. He then left and went off to do some other church planting bits. And then these like sexy, attractive, rich preachers came through Corinth and started preaching to the church. And they had all the fancy uh, like language skills, and they were really appealing on that front. And they charged them money, so they were really wealthy, whereas Paul never charged the Corinthians money. And the Corinthians were like, oh my word, you know what? These guys are really amazing. And Paul is poor, and he's hated by everyone, and he's always ending up in prison. And he's not even that good a public speaker, which is like the biggest slam that you could say against someone. So they, they then wrote to Paul this frankly really rude letter where they said, can you just send us some references, please, to show us that you're worth listening to? Some letters of recommendation that, that would help us realize if you're like, worth listening to. And Paul writes back this very gracious letter of 2 Corinthians. Um, and so he, he writes them back this letter. In it, he mentions the Macedonian church. That's another church that Paul had planted, and um, they, he kind of references them. And he also references uh, this collection that they were doing around the other churches for Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was predominantly Jewish, and there was a famine in the land, so all of these Jewish Christians were starving. So when Paul went around planting churches, he was raising money and sending it back to the Jerusalem church. That's the overview. That's a bit of context. Go away and read the book. It's fantastic. But that's my short version. So if we could get the passage up on the screen, please. Um, so it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to hopefully 9 or something. Uh, so it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God gave the churches in Macedonia. They've been tested by great troubles, and they're very poor. But they gave much because of their great joy. I can tell you that they gave as much as they were able and even more than they could afford. No one told them to do it, but they begged and pleaded with us to let them share in this service for God's people. And they gave in a way we didn't expect. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And this is what God wants. So we asked Titus to help finish this special work of grace since he's the one who started it. You guys are rich in everything, in faith, in speaking, in knowledge, in truly wanting to help, and in the love that you learned from us. In the same way, be strong also in the grace of giving. So that's where we get the title for the talk. Um, now, I was thinking the Corinthians, their struggle was like, okay, do we give ourselves first to the Lord? And they kind of mentally committed to doing that, but then they just lapsed. They just sort of floated back into this world that they'd tried to give up and... Um, and I thought, that's, what, that's the constant temptation. That hasn't changed. That's what we are tempted to do as well. So what are the things that we are in danger of lapsing back into, to giving ourselves to first? I think the, one of the main things that our culture encourages us to give ourselves to is ourselves. The world says, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Speak your truth. Be your most authentic, authentic self. Discover yourself. And it just has this main character vibe. Um, this is the way that the world says that you'll be free, is if you invest in yourself and you, you discover yourself. And it, it gives us this main character syndrome, which is described as behaving as though you are the main character in the story of your life, often by inflicting yourself on other people as if your narrative is more important. And that's celebrated. Uh, we say, take up space and be unapologetically you. If other people don't understand you, then just cut them out. Uh, you're committed to your own personal growth, and if other people don't understand that, then you don't have to take their feelings into consideration because you're the most important one. Now, some of those um, phrases aren't like, necessarily intrinsically evil, but they're just the way that the world will tell you to grasp freedom. 
but actually the Bible tells us that there's a better way, and Jesus tells us there's a better way. So the second thing that I think the world tells us to give ourselves to is to your career, is to just be in a straight-up businessman and a, a businesswoman and just like go out there and devote yourself to work. Now, 50%, over 50% of, UK, of the UK workforce say that their work-life boundaries are blurred. We have hustle culture, and we drink coffee so that we can sleep less and work more, which is what Elon Musk like, absolutely promotes ultimately. He says, no one ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. We need to hustle all the time. The World Health Organization acknowledges at the moment that stress is one of the leading causes of heart disease in young people with no other genetic or lifestyle factors that would, uh, yeah, they have no other situations in their life that mean they develop heart disease. And they're like, why are they developing heart disease? And then they realized it's because they're overworked. And they then did this big study into it. And this blew my mind and I had to check it several times before I believed it. Heart disease from overwork kills 750,000 people a year, which is almost double the number of people who die globally from malaria. So overwork is killing us more than malaria. We glorify people being highly capable and always available for work. We love workaholics right up until the point where they burn out. And when you burn out, you get an email from work saying, we've arranged a mental health webinar for you to go to over lunch, which is frankly the solution that no one was asking for. But it's really glorified. 63% of UK workers do unpaid overtime at least once a week, and that's by arriving early, finishing late, or working through lunch, which I was like, working through lunch isn't that bad. It's entirely normalized. It's in our brains to work and to give ourselves to work more than is uh, in our schedule. Um, So that's the second thing that I think the world wants to draw us into. And the third thing is family. Now, don't get me wrong here. I love family. I am in a family, and it's lovely. Um, But the world says your nuclear family is the most important thing out there. Um, You need to look after your husband or your wife, your two and a half children, your dog, your garden. That's what you give yourself to. Take your children to every extracurricular activity under the sun. Build your life around your kids. My friend had a baby the other day, and she was, uh, the baby was struggling to latch and start breastfeeding. So she was told by medical professionals, you need to lie in bed for two weeks, and j- your baby just needs to learn how to, um, how to breastfeed. So you just lie in bed, don't do anything else for two weeks. That's what you do. And she was like, how can I be a human? I need to see the sun. I need to get outside. I need to move around. I can't sit in bed for two full weeks just literally doing that 24 hours a day. And there's this baby-centered, like, child-rearing practices that are just like, everything is about that. Now, learning to breastfeed is really important. I'm not downplaying that. But just the fact that we say everything in your life needs to be entirely focused on this. I think that's really hard. If you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you uh, have fertility issues, it kind of just sucks to be you. Like, that's what the world says. Anything left after giving yourself to discovering who you are and then giving yourself to work and then totally giving yourself to your family, you've got like 2 3% left. And you can like go to the pub with your friends or go for a run or something or maybe go to church if that's your vibe. But society is highly individualized, and we have individualized, like, that's the highest priority, is you and yourself, and then your immediate tiny little nuclear family. But Paul is telling us to give ourselves first to the Lord. So what does this mean? It sounds spiritual, it sounds good, but what does it actually look like when we do that uh, without lapsing back into the things that the world tells us to give ourselves to? 
Well, the first thing I would argue that Paul wants us, that it, it looks like when you give yourself to the Lord, is to be full of Christ. So Jesus actually talks about this in uh, Matthew 16. I think we've got those verses ready. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Jesus says, if you want to find your life and discover true life and be your most authentic self, then you need to give up your life. It's just backwards, countercultural. It doesn't really make sense. But that's what Jesus says. If you give yourself first to the Lord, you will find your life. It will be given back to you. Now, as I said, I work for the ambulance service, and I've had the privilege of delivering two babies over the phone. Um, and one of them, it was quite funny, because the mum the whole time was going, this isn't my birth plan, this isn't my birth plan, this isn't my birth plan. And I was like, again, birth plans are very important, very medically useful. It's good to educate people on what, what's going to happen. But I thought, oh, you thought that your baby was going to stick to your birth plan, and that's just, I'm so sorry that that's not the case. And frankly, if we had control over our bodies women probably wouldn't have periods and probably wouldn't be giving birth in the way that that happens. So we just have this funny idea that we have a lot of control over our lives. And we don't. You can plan and you can save really well, but you can't control your health. And you can be sensible and give yourself time to get to work. But sometimes, next slide please, um, sometimes cows just break loose from a farm and they just walk around town. This happens fairly regularly. It's one of those funny news stories where, you know, someone's the whole, the whole town woke up. This is a town called Beverly in the north. They just woke up and these cows had broken loose and they're just everywhere and no one could drive anywhere because the cows were just sat in the middle of the road. So we can plan things, but fundamentally we don't have control. And Jesus says, give me control of your life and I will give you your life back to you. It won't be easy sailing. It will not be straightforward necessarily. Life still throws things at you. But there are people in this room who've been Christians for a really long time even though life has thrown them one blow after another. And the reason that they're still Christians is because they have discovered something more deeply satisfying when they've given control over, when they've given themselves first to the Lord and rather, rather than giving themselves first to society. So, a Christ-centered life. Um, yeah, what is the impact of giving yourself first to the Lord? Now, in the context of this passage, Paul's actually talking about money. So the Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and it says, and then to us, the brothers and sisters in Christ around them. And they were inspired. They weren't manipulated or guilt-tripped, but they were inspired into giving their money to the Jerusalem church. And this was crazy, not just because they'd never met these people, but for the Jerusalem church, which, as I said, was predominantly Jews, they were still, the Jews were still having a hard time coming, coming to terms with the idea that Jesus came to save all people and not just the Jews, because that was their entire cultural heritage, was like Jews are the people of God. Everyone else is, he doesn't really care about. Um, but the fact that these Christians were, who were following Jesus were giving money to them was this crazy show of like radical ethnic racial unity. So it's like a double whammy. It's like, oh gosh, now we have money for food, but also these people around us who we've never met love us, and, and we're all in the body of Christ. So it was a huge statement. And Paul points this out to the Corinthian church, who'd stopped raising money for the Jerusalem church. They'd kind of, they'd been like, until Paul proves how cool he is, um, and he gets out of prison, then we're not going to send any money to that church. But 
so he kind of uses the Macedonians. It's like, come on, guys, like, look at what these guys are doing. They're so poor. They're, they've been through so many troubles, and yet they are still joyful, and they are still radically generous. Paul even points out that it's part of like sanctification, which is a fancy way of saying uh, that Christians use when we say we're becoming more like Jesus. So he even says... Um, we asked Titus to finish this special work of grace since he's the one who started it. You're rich in everything, in faith, in speaking, in knowledge, in truly wanting to help and the love that you learn from us. In the same way, be strong also in the grace of giving. So he's putting it in context of like, you're doing all these things right, but if you're not also being generous, then it's almost like you're missing this whole part of what God wants to do in your life. Um, when you give yourself first to the Lord, your focus will shift from like my poverty to generosity even though they were lacking and I've in preparing this I thought what does it look like to give generously even through your poverty and then I remembered I've seen this in a crazy way so I uh, lived in America for a couple of years and I worked with this organization called Youth with a Mission and we would take students and uh, give them some biblical training and pastoral input for a couple of months and then we go and do an overseas outreach working with local churches all around the world and it was expensive because uh, we were flying to a bunch of different places. And so we'd have these fundraising days and people would, you know, do car washes and sell food and brownies and cake and stuff. But fundamentally, it got to the point where we thought, we have 150 students here and we are short $50,000. We were short of a lot of money. And um, so we got together and prayed and we we're worshipping and raising money and everyone's giving money to each other. Students who didn't have enough money for themselves were like, God just told me to give $100 to you, so I'm going to do that. And people are you know, money's flying all over the room and being donated all over by PayPal and everything. In walked Todd White. Now, this guy, you may have heard of him. He's an American evangelist. He looks like the orc from Lord of the Rings that kills Boromir. He's, like, ripped and stacked. Um, and he, like, strides in and finds out that we're short $50,000. And he rang his wife and his ministry partners, and they'd been fundraising and, wait, like, praying for investment and getting money together for a long time to buy a patch of land to start up their own school to train students in evangelism. They'd been fundraising for a long time, and he walked in and heard he's, he's a man who surrendered his life to Jesus. He's given himself first to the Lord, and he prayed, rang his wife, rang his business partners, came over to the mic, and he said, I've just got off the phone with my wife and these guys, and we've been praying, and we, we, wanna, we want you guys to be fully funded, so we're giving you 50 grand. <laughs> Out of their own budget, they were donating $50,000, so everyone suddenly in an instant was ready to go on, on the outreach. And the room lit up. It was like we won the Euros. It was crazy. And I thought, that's what it looks like when you don't have enough and you're still giving generously out of your lack. And it was crazy. I've been um, uh, one, also in Youth with a Mission. I was uh, holding the donation pot one night when we'd been raising money for uh, like a Nigerian branch of Youth with a Mission. And, um, and they, this couple came forwards, and they were smiling. They were really excited. But they didn't put money into the pot. They put their wedding rings in. They put their gold bands and her engagement ring into the pot. And I was like, what's happening? And they were like, oh, we don't have cash, but we wanted to give this. And they were joyful about it. That's what it means to give out of your lack. It's challenging. I haven't yet done that with... I haven't given 50 grand away to someone or, like, any kind of engagement ring. Um, but there's a joy there. And I don't, I don't think that God is necessarily asking you to do that not tonight. I don't want to be prescriptive about this. But I want to kind of lay it out there as something to mull over. If you're not being generous with what you have, is the Holy Spirit working in you? Because that's kind of what Paul suggests. It's like, if you're stagnating in your faith, you've done all these things, but you feel like you're stagnating, 
ask God, what do you want me to do with the money that you've given me? And if you want to give away 50 grand, I would advise that you do that with the wisdom of some people around you as well. And you'll notice that we're not doing an offering tonight. I'm not like, you should give all your money to church. <laughs> no one should be giving 110% of their income to Woody's. I'm just kind of putting it out there as food for thought. So that's, yeah, having a Jesus-centered life uh, is the first thing. And the second thing is, what does your situation look like with money? Um, thirdly, Community. Now, uh, I talked about the family, and I just want to explain again that I don't hate biological family. It's very important and wonderful. But uh, up until the 1950s, all of human history worked on the multi-generational, broad-structured family, aunts and uncles and cousins all over the place and farmhands coming in and shop workers over there and grandparents and stuff. Everyone all lived together. Um, and that came with huge benefits. That meant you always had childcare. It meant if someone was ill, then you, know, you could still feed your kids or something. It meant if you were unemployed, you weren't going to lose your housing. You had a bit of extra leeway there. Uh, and you know, I think it was probably really good for teenagers because teenagers just do not want to hear what their parents have to say. But if you live in a big family, you can go to cool Uncle Johnny or like cool cousin Tina or something. You can go and speak to other people if you have a fight with your parents. And that, that massive family structure, I picture it like a cobweb. Like if you throw something at it, you could, there was a bit more kind of support around. Whereas with a nuclear family, mum, dad, two kids, your dog and whatever, then if you throw something there, it's a small structure and it's hard to take the blows that life throws at us. And because we don't have that broad structure of family anymore, we have to have after-school clubs and we have to have carers to go and cook meals for the elderly and give them their medications and make sure they're not accidentally taking all of them and stuff. Um, and life has kind of adjusted to the nuclear family. But, yeah, I just, I just think there, there may actually be a little bit more in that community there. So at the ambulance service, the bread and butter calls that I get every single day is from little old people who've fallen over and they'll ring in and say, oh, I'm sorry, I have to call you. I don't want to waste your time, but I'm stuck on the ground. I'm not injured, I'm just stuck on the ground. And no one is there to pick them up and they don't have a relationship with their neighbours. Their family live, you know, far away or something. And there's a term for that, which is elder orphan, which is just a heartbreaking term. Um, we have chronic loneliness. And like, we hear these stories regularly of people who died in their houses and were found weeks later and they'd been like, eaten by their cats or something. That did not happen for most of human history because there was this inbuilt community. The early church was really good at this. So um, in the second century, there's a woman called Perpetua who lived in modern-day Tunisia. And her and her church uh, got rounded up by the Romans and put in prison. They were like, you're all Christians, you need to recant your faith. And Perpetua and the gang were like, no, we love Jesus. So they were kept in prison for a couple of weeks, possibly a couple of months. And they were told every day, recant your faith or we're going to throw you to the lions. Um, and there was this one woman who had not been rounded up with them. She'd managed to somehow, I guess she just wasn't at church that day or something. And so she was uh, outside just living freely. And she was so wounded at being separated from the people who were her deep, deepest connections that she eventually handed herself in to be in prison with them, to be like, oh, thank goodness, I'm back together with the people who are these hugely significant relationships that weren't biological for her. They, I think she was a slave. So like one of them was her master um, and these people that she wasn't biologically related to. And they all went to their deaths uh, in an arena and were killed by animals and stuff. But, like, isn't that a crazy idea? I can't imagine, possibly, sorry, mum and dad, but, like, doing that to my family, I can't imagine being like, yeah, I'll die just to be with you. 
um, let alone people that I'm not biologically related to. I just wonder if there's something we can be more inclusive uh, by, by going beyond our, our biological family. And Jesus did this too. It's slightly insulting to his mum, but I'm sure there was more to the story. But one day he's preaching and teaching to all these people, and then his mum and brothers kind of rock up, and they're like, oh, hey, Jesus, we're here to see you. And he's like, actually, my family are the people around me who love God and are doing his work. What would it look like if, if Christians up and down the country were mobilized to be that community, to be the radical community to the people around them? for going, you know, going beyond biological ties and class divides and social settings. And again, I don't want to be prescriptive and I don't want this to seem like a guilt trip and like, well, I've learned how to do it because I haven't. But Jesus was radically welcoming to the people that society rejected. And I think it breaks his heart when we aren't the same now, when we don't, you know, the people that society rejects may look different, but we can still go out there and, and, and meet with them and love those people. So again... I, I'm not against biological family, it's wonderful, but I just want to also, alongside that, have a bigger vision of God's family than just my own. And I think society would be much richer if Christians went out there and we did community and we knew our neighbours so that you could scoop them up and they wouldn't have to wait 10 hours for an ambulance. Side note, it's so busy, just get a taxi. But also, befriend your neighbours so that you can go and pick them up when they fall over. So... Those are some of the things that I just wanted to share. I think society wants to draw us back into the self-centered view of life of like, I have to discover who I am. And then I have to find a career that's deeply fulfilling that I can give 95% of my time to. And then I'll eventually get a nuclear family and I can take the kids to trampolining on the weekend. I think Jesus says, no, if you give up your life, if you give yourself first to me, then I will give you back your life. And you will know joy through trials like the Macedonian church. And you will be able to be radically generous through your poverty even. And the community around you and society at large will be richer for it. So off the back of that, uh, I just, I felt like there might be, uh, maybe you've been completely disinterested. But maybe also there are four different types of responses here. Um, maybe you need to, maybe you've realized, oh, actually, the things I've given myself to are the wrong priorities. Uh, maybe you need to repent for giving your heart and your life over to the wrong things. And repentance is the best gift that God gives us because it just makes it so easy for us to come back. We don't have to do the, like, earning it all back again. You can just say, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done, and I want to put you back in the center again. And he's like, come back right in. You're right back in the fold again. It's so, it makes it so easy, and all you have to do is, is just repent in your heart. So maybe you need to respond to that and think, ah, yeah, I, I want to reprioritize you, Jesus. Maybe you haven't necessarily put, had the wrong priorities in your life, and you haven't given yourself over to the wrong stuff, but you just want to say, like, actually, I want to be even more in than I am now. Like, I want to, there are other parts of my life that maybe I'm not even aware of that I want to give to you, Lord, give first. And uh, I love looking at the, the trajectory of Peter's life in the Gospels because he, he's so flipping keen, but he gets it wrong all the time. But every time that he realizes that he's, he's had the wrong priorities or, or something like that, then he's like, oh, okay. And he learns from it so beautifully. And he's so quick to, Jesus is so kind to him again and again, but he's so quick to, to turn around. And he, it, you, it looks like he gives his life incrementally. When he first follows Jesus, he's like leaving the ship behind and leaving the fishing behind. And, and then 
later he'll you know it's kind of pointed out to him that there are other parts of his life that he hasn't surrendered like his temper or his judgment of other people and once it's pointed out he's like oh okay yeah and he rejects it and he turns away from it and you just look at every point in the gospels of of where this stuff's pointed out to him and he so joyfully repents every time so maybe you're like I haven't necessarily been giving myself to the wrong things but I want to give myself as much as I can now so God if there's anything else in me that you want to that I need to reorientate then please show me Or maybe you're someone who is like, giving myself entirely to the Lord, giving myself first to the Lord sounds terrifying. And maybe you don't trust God, and maybe you've had negative experiences in church, or you've felt let down by God, or there's just a fear there for whatever reason. And if that's you, I'm sorry, because it's hard being in that place. But God is so kind. Jesus is so kind throughout the Gospels, giving just the little bit of the smallest bit of leeway, and, and he'll, he'll want to meet you right there. So maybe you're someone who's like, I don't necessarily want to give my life over to you because I don't trust you. That's fine. You can come forwards and say that. So if any of those statements have sort of resounded with you and you thought, mm, that is actually me, um, then we'll have some people down at the side here on your left, and they would just love to pray with you. They can pray for you. They can be a witness to you praying and you kind of doing business with God. But I would just encourage you, if any of that has struck a nerve, then just respond to that with Jesus and, um, yeah, get some prayer. So that's a conclusion there, Nigel. And some other stuff is going to happen now. (laughs) Well done, Ella. Thank you.